I'll be reading from John 10, 11 through 21. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, you know, Advent as a season is a, it's a great time to ask the question, uh, why did Jesus come? It's a, it's a good question to ask, and uh, particularly if you were living at the time of Jesus, it would have been an anomaly to think that Jesus would have come. I mean, the idea among the pagans was that this world, the flesh and disease and despair and death, the movement was from the material to the spiritual. So the idea was leave the material to enjoy the freedom and the happiness of the spiritual. That was what everybody wanted to do. That was the prevailing thought. And to think that someone from the spiritual or from the divine that would come down and take on flesh and embrace death and limitations and disease, that was, that was confusing to them. So, so it's right to ask, why would he come? And last week, if you remember... We saw that he came to be our friend. That was the first reason we looked at in John 15. He came to be our friend. And and as a friend, he came to love us with a unique love. He came to call us to obey him and for him to lead us to life. That as a friend, he came to disclose God's redemptive purposes. I mean, God knows all that's going to happen, and he's disclosing it to us. And God also, uh, he also came as a friend. Uh, to forgive us and to make us make us fruitful in life. So what about today, though? Why did he come? It, it, the scriptures tell us that he came to be a shepherd, a shepherd. It's a sweet imagery, isn't it? I mean, shepherd with sheep kind of going down the hill. But he came, he says, to be the good shepherd. And the word for good can mean noble or beautiful. He came to be a beautiful shepherd. And so I just want to answer one question today, and that is this. What makes him so good? What makes him so beautiful? Why is he our good shepherd? And as Ali read, you you kind of see right off the bat, he's a good shepherd. He calls himself, it's self-disclosing. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The first thing we see that makes him so good is that he cares for us. He's sensitive to us. He's kind. He, He lays down his life for the sheep. Now, notice the contrast that 
that Jesus immediately speaks about this hired hand. You know, the hired hand is someone that you hire to go watch the sheep. The hired hand is doing it as a job. It's wages. He doesn't have any real concern for the sheep. He definitely doesn't have any love for the sheep. He's just put out there. The sheep to him are a commodity. At best, maybe it's a symbiotic relationship where they get some protection and maybe maybe the, the shepherd gets some clothing or some food. But there's no real concern for the sheep. Now, why the contrast here? Why does Jesus, in wanting to display his care and compassion, immediately hold himself against these hired hands? Well, of course, context is king for us. We, we love context because it helps us steer into the right understanding of Scripture. In chapter 9, if you remember the story, there was a blind man and Jesus healed him. And, uh, and the blind man is more, for us in Scripture, he's more than just a man who's blind. He's actually a picture of humanity who has the Messiah sent from God to save right in front of him, and he can't see him. And Jesus then castigates the religious leaders. He calls them blind guides because they were unable, unwilling, uncaring, to teach the people about the things of God, such that when the Messiah comes, they miss him. And that's why Jesus calls them in verse 10 of our chapter. He says they're thieves and robbers. They're stealing the opportunity to know the greatness of God through the Messiah. And so Jesus is caught, he's contrasting himself with these false shepherds. Now, this was something that plagued the history of Israel. And we, in fact, see this in the book of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel begins to criticize With the words of God, these false leaders, he says in 34, son of man, he's speaking to Ezekiel as a type, but pointing to Jesus, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? My sheep wandered all over the mountain and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. So Jesus is saying, the shepherds that you have had, they are false and they are inadequate. He says, I'm the good shepherd. So he holds himself against the false shepherding of Israel. He's saying, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. He cares for the sheep with the extent of his own life. Now listen, just picture in your mind for a minute, because he raises up this issue. When threat comes, when the wolf comes, what does the hired hand do? He takes off. He's running. Now just imagine for a minute. You have a flock of sheep on a hill, and a bunch of wolves come. Now, wolf, you know, sheep have no defensive attributes. I mean, they're not fast. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have strong hooves or sharp claws. They don't have a hardened shell. I mean, when wolves get among sheep, it's a bloodbath. It's a slaughter fest. You can just imagine. And then you hear Jesus saying, I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. They're my sheep. I will protect them. They won't suffer under my watchful eye. So Jesus is saying, I care for the sheep. Now, now there's something more going on here. I want you to realize uh, that, that there was a promise made by God in Scripture that he would ultimately send the perfect shepherd. The, 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 per, the perfect shepherd in every way. 
We find this in Ezekiel, the same chapter, incidentally, in chapter 34. And listen to what God says about his own shepherding and how he discharges the responsibility to shepherd to this unique individual. He says this, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and I will look after them. He says, I will look after my sheep. I'll rescue them from the places where they're scattered. I'll bring them from the nations and gather them from the countries. I will search for the lost and I'll bring back the strays. I'll bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. This is God speaking now. He's saying, I, like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I will shepherd my flock. But then look what he says just a few verses later. He says, I will save my flock and they will no longer be plundered. I will place over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, when Ezekiel wrote those words, David had been dead for 350 years. So he's clearly not talking about David. He's talking about the son of David. One would come in the line of David, and he would be the shepherd. So when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, people's ears should have been burning, ringing with excitement, that the one that was promised before has now come. That's the point of Advent. It's rejoicing that he has come to fulfill all the promises of God. And so Jesus now is stepping on the scene as God, saying, I will now shepherd my people. So for the Christian here, if you're a Christian, you're marveling with me over the fact that Jesus, when he discloses himself, he doesn't point to his power, his preeminence, his majesty, his glory, his judgment. He points to the care and the compassion and the gentleness that he gives, that he's a kind God, that, that he's tender-hearted with us. He's gentle and he's sweet among us, that he's kind. I think many of you, if you look back in your lives, I, I think you can probably reflect on the kindness of God, his shepherding care. I mean, when you look back in your life, can't you see those times where you just missed an accident? And, and, and it wasn't just a matter of, well, you know, I had my fingers crossed. This, is not, this has never done anything for me, uh, other than maybe some digital exercise. It's never done anything. But, but that near miss, or perhaps that time when you were financially pressed and a gift came in at just the right time. Or maybe it, was, maybe it was you didn't know what to do. You were absolutely confused. And someone said the right thing at the right time that just helped you kind of navigate. Were those just happenstances in life? Or was it the shepherd guiding you and leading you? I shared a long time ago about a situation for Carol and I when we were overseas in Austria serving the refugees, and uh, we went overseas and didn't make a lot of money. And, and, um, but uh, Katie was of the age that, you know, tricycles were great for her to learn and play with, and so we wanted to get one. But in Europe, it was very, very expensive. And we lived an hour away from Vienna, and it was hard to get there, and just a lot of complicating factors. And so Carol just prayed, God, we, we, need, we need a tricycle. It's so simple, you know. It's not like a drowning man needs a life raft, you know. It, it's a simple thing. It really is. And God's character it wasn't hanging in the balance on it, but we just appealed to him. And a couple of weeks later, Carol gets a phone call from a woman, another missionary in another part, another town, 
said, hey, we know you just moved in and you got a young girl and who's two, two and a half years old. And I just had a tricycle. Would you like to buy for $15? And so I said, well, I'll give it, take it for 10 No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't want to push the Lord too much on that. But, but what we thought was how tender and merciful of God to be aware of the small needs of our lives. And this is the nature of God. I mean, he cares for us. Do you know in your history how much he cares? So, so, so the struggle with, with believing this is when you're in the midst of struggle or trial or hardship, you have relational conflict, you have medical issues, And it distracts us from the good character of God. I want to encourage you, for the Christian, run to Jesus Christ. Call out to him. Seek him for wisdom if you're confused. Seek him for provision if you are challenged right now. Seek him for protection if you feel threatened. Appeal to him. You know, it's an amazing thing about the Lord. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened. This is the language of the shepherd. Because the shepherd in, in this day would stand at the gate of the sheepfold and call out his sheep. Because oftentimes various flocks would be, would be brought together for safety and protection, reducing the number of shepherds needed. And so the, the shepherd would come to the door of the fold and call his sheep out. And Jesus is saying, come to me, all you who are heavy laden and burdened, and I'll give you rest. So seek him for that. This is really a picture of the gospel. The gospel working itself out in your life. The gospel doesn't just save you from death to life, but it brings you from glory to glory. It sanctifies you. One author said it this way. He says, come unto me and I will give you. You say, Lord, I cannot give you anything. He doesn't want anything. Come to Jesus and he says, I will give you. Not what you give to God, but what he gives to you will be your salvation. I will give you, this is the gospel in four words. The, 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 the author says, will you come and have it? It lies open to you. So, so that's the first thing we see here, is that Jesus is a good shepherd because he cares for us. Uh, but then secondly, Jesus is a good shepherd because he knows us. He knows his sheep. He knows them. Look with me in 14 and 15 here. He says this. He says, I am the good shepherd I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus knows us. Now, it's, I know my own. There's a possessiveness there. The knowledge that Jesus Christ has of us is not an informational kind of historical knowledge like I know George Washington. I know about George Washington. I can tell you facts about him, but I don't know him. When Jesus says, I know my own, it isn't I know about you, I know you. This knowledge is much more of an experiential, it's much more of a personal. I would even say it's intimate because the same word is used when a husband can say, I know my wife. There's an intimacy there. There's a close proximity. And this knowledge that that Jesus has of us is to be a reciprocal knowledge. That's why I think he brings up the analogy or the comparison with his father. Just as I know my father and my father knows me. Now, we will never know Jesus to the extent that Jesus knows his father. But the point is one of comparison and reciprocity, that he knows us. It's a bilateral relationship. So Jesus as our shepherd hasn't come to just be our king. 
He has come to be our king. But in this context, he's showing us that it's not like a, it's not like the relationship between a king and a castle and the servants out taking care of his fields. They may know about each other, but they don't know each other. But that's so with us. Jesus has come. He's a good shepherd because he's come to know us and he's come to be known by us. Now, you'll notice in the text, and I want you to look at it, because he says, I know my own and my own know me. That doesn't seem to be a generalized knowledge. In other words, Jesus is saying, while Jesus knows everything, he doesn't know all the sheep as he knows his own sheep. There's a unique knowledge there, and I think that's the comparison with the Father as well, that the relationship between the Father and the Son is unique and personal. So there's not an intellectual awareness that we're speaking about here. Jesus personally knows us. And he, he doesn't say this about all the sheep. Do you realize that? Not every single person on this globe can say, I know Jesus and Jesus knows me. That's a, that's a sobering idea right there. Now, he's spoken about it earlier in chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. He says, the sheep listen to my voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. In other words, his sheep are identified by those who listen and follow. It's not listening that makes us a sheep. It's listening that identifies us as sheep. So the question is not simply, do I know Jesus? That's an important question, but it's secondary. Does, does Jesus know me? You know, because in Matthew 7, we have these warning words of Jesus. You know, people come up to Jesus and say, hey, I did miracles in your name, and I cast out demons in your name. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. That's sobering to me. Because he's saying that to religious people who are doing pretty charismatic stuff that I haven't been doing lately. I mean, he, they're doing some big things. He says, I never knew you. Does Jesus know you? Does he know you? How do you know if he knows you? Will you know if you hear his voice and you follow? If the words of Christ resonate in your soul? Let me, let me give you the words of Spurgeon, the great preacher in England in the 19th century. He says, the Lord puts it this way. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. Here is the matter in a nutshell. Christ appears as a shepherd to his own sheep, not to others. As soon as he appears, his own sheep perceive him. They trust him. They're prepared to follow him. He knows them and they know him. There is a mutual knowledge. There is a constant connection between them. And so the evidence, the infallible mark of regeneration and adoption is a hearty faith in the appointed Savior, not in these other saviors, in this one. Jonathan Edwards, another great scholar of the 18th century in New England. I love the way he put it. He simply said this, there may be several good evidences that a tree is a fig tree, but the highest and most proper evidence of it is that it actually bears figs. Now that would be the indication, that's a fig tree. So for those that are known by Jesus, you listen to him, you're connected to him, you're following him. His word matters to you. His word adjusts your life. You're seeking to know him in his word. You're seeking to follow him by his word. That's some of the evidence to you. And if you're a Christian and you know now that he knows you, would you not rejoice? 
I, I mean, he knows where you live. He knows what you think. He knows where you are. He knows the state of your marriage. He knows the state of your trouble. He knows the state of your joy. He knows everything about you. I mean, in, in a way, it can be almost a little frightening, but I think it's liberating. Because I don't need to put shields up anymore. I don't need to promote myself in a way that's not true to who I am. He knows me and loves me. You know how it is with us. Sometimes the more you get to know a person, the more you draw back from them. You know, in these dating relationships, you know, you, you, you meet the person and, wow, that's really great. And then go out again and, eh, eh kind of great, you know. And go out a third, eh, that's not so great. And then all of a sudden you're not answering the phone anymore. You know, you get to know them and you don't love them. And yet he knows us fully and he loves us. You don't have to hide a thing from him. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to be bashful about confessing to him. You don't have to be shy about disclosing to him what you're struggling with. Jesus Christ knows you through and through. This is what lifted David to such heights when he wrote Psalm 139. He said this, he says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit, you know when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. There is liberty in this. There is absolute freedom, not just between us and God, but between us and one another, that he knows us and loves us. Therefore, we can know and love one another. Do you labor to move in your knowledge of him? Are you laboring? Are you working to know him? It's a reciprocal relationship. His love isn't conditioned on your pursuit of him, but your enjoyment of his love is. Your pleasure in his knowledge of you is. So this is why he's a good shepherd. He knows us. But then thirdly, he's a good shepherd because he's gathering his sheep into one fold. Look with me at 16. You could preach a half a dozen sermons on this text. It's a huge text across all of Scripture. In 16 we read, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There is so much rich theology tucked into this verse. He is good because he's gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. See, the Jewish audience that would have heard this, the, the Jew would have thought that they were the apple of God's eye and that they were special and unique and the shepherd had come to save them. They had lost sight of God's plan running through Israel to the nations. They saw it in them and stopped with them. So this would have shocked them. And what he's saying is this, is that Jesus has said, I've come to gather men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I am going to have a, a multi-ethnic, diverse flock over which I will be the singular shepherd. And this is really the promise that was made to Abraham. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, so go back with me a little bit more, actually. Go back to Genesis 2. He creates the, husband, the uh, man and the woman, the Adam and Eve, and says, hey, rule the nations and, and cause the ground to be fruitful and multiply and, and live for my glory and enjoy my presence, right? And they fall, and of course they fall, and and sin breaks division, brings division between man and, and God. And then, of course, death enters the scene. In chapter 5, they died, they died, they died. And 
boom, the flood comes, and we're going to restart. We're going to wash the place clean with a big bath. We're going to clean the place out. We're going to start over. But the heart of man was broken, and, and God knew that. And so what happens? We see, boom, they go right back into wickedness, and they build a tower in chapter 11. We're going to reach God on our own merit. We're going to reach God with our own efforts. And so, and boom, what's God do? Well, he distributes the languages, and he's, he stops them from self-destruction, basically. But then God begins something with Abraham, and he says, through you, Abraham, you, a seed will come, and the nations will be blessed. And then that seed, of course, of Abraham is Jesus. And it's, it's, not, it's not by coincidence that when Matthew begins his gospel and he gives us the lineage of Jesus, the two main characters in Jesus' earthly line was David and Abraham. And so Jesus is that seed now to bless the nations. And, and you know that it's going to be a blessing because look in 16, he says, I must bring them. This isn't a subjunctive, I might bring them. I must bring them, he says, and they will listen to my voice. Do you hear the confidence in the shepherd? Do you hear the confidence? He knows his sheep. He's going to get them. They will come to him. They will hear his voice. They will obey him. There is such a good, strong confidence that exudes the voice of this shepherd that's coming to gather people to himself. So for the Christian here, into one flock. So for the Christian, again, we are, we are sitting at this text just rejoicing over him. We're rejoicing that we're his sheep. Listen, he says that I will lay my life down for my sheep. My own know me. Do you see the possessiveness there? Why are you a sheep? If you have heard his voice and you are a Christian, why are you this way? If you come from a family and maybe only a couple of you are Christian and the others aren't, why are you a Christian? I mean, were you smarter than your siblings? I mean, were you just better? Did you hear the information and process it? I mean, do you see the divine electing mercy of God in this passage? That I'm coming for my own? I mean, they were already, it's like, it's like a parent with a child. Your love for them was present before they even know you love them. They didn't even know you. And yet you already love them. This is the picture here. I, I mean, it humbles me, and yet it makes me just exhilarated at the same time. I have no reason to claim any right with God other than pure grace. If I had anything to do with it, if it was my wisdom processing some biblical teaching that I received, then you know what, Tom? I'm gonna, you can pat me on my back when I walk through those gates. But I'll tell you, if he just moved on me with sheer mercy, then I've got nothing but thanks and gratitude to him. But not only that, we rejoice over the mission of the church. Do you realize that missions is effective because of verse 16? You can take the hardest-hearted man or woman and you can have confidence to declare the gospel to them. And if they hear his voice and they follow, then praise God. Even in the hardest context to the unreached people groups, to Muslim countries, this message moves people. I think about in Acts chapter 18. If you remember Paul, uh, he is having a, a tough go of it, basically, in his preaching ministry. And here's what God says to him one night. One night the Lord, should say Jesus, spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. There's a reason to be afraid if people are trying to kill you. He says, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you. 
and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. So that's indicating that, that Paul's mission was going to be effective in spite of the opposition that he faced. So the church will be effective. And the last thing we can rejoice over 16 is the sense that this church is going to be his one flock with him being shepherd. It's going to be a multi-ethnic, diverse community. Uh, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, every ethnicity. That's why I love our church as it, as it grows to be more multi-ethnic. We need to strive for a multi-ethnic church. I don't want to just be floating down the lazy river and let it happen. I want to be engaging people of other cultures, other colors. I, I want us to be. That's, this isn't just the leadership responsibility. This is all of ours. We want this church to be somewhat reflective of what that one flock will be. Now, we'll never be reflective of it in perfection, but we will one day. But right now, this church is to mirror in an imperfect way what that one flock will be. And that's why we ought to have people from every color, every ethnicity here. Very important. We want to strive for that. Would you pray with me for that? I think about that. You know, we don't have because we don't ask. Well, maybe we should start asking more. Be more diligent to ask the one who's come to be our good shepherd. The last reason that he is our, our good shepherd, that Jesus is our good shepherd, because he, he lays down his life for us. Now, I want to remind you, because none of us are probably, a few of us, I should say, there actually are a few, um, that may tend sheep. Carol and I tended sheep, actually, uh, but I'll save that story for another day, um, in Austria. So... Um, There was inherent dangers with shepherding, as you can imagine. You're leading sheep, you're going out, living in exposed elements, and there are threats around you. So there are inherent dangers. And to be a shepherd meant that you were risking some degree uh, in being a shepherd. But there was never the understanding that a shepherd would lay down his life. There was never that understanding. I mean, number one, it's stupid, because then you make all the rest of the sheep vulnerable. Maybe people died unintentionally, but the worth of a man or a woman was greater than the worth of a sheep. So it was never thought to lay down your life. And yet Jesus says, but I lay my life down for my sheep. In other words, his sacrificial death is is in substitute for us. This is really instructive. And you've heard me repeat this, and you'll probably continue to, because it's so central to the Christian faith. That Jesus, you know, when John says he died or he laid down his life for his sheep, that little word is instructive because it's used to indicate the substitution. He died in place of his sheep. He died instead of his sheep. So the death that was to be ours was actually borne by him that we would then go free. So he has died for us. It's, it's a substitution. The Christian is known by the fact that he knows he doesn't ever have to die. Because Jesus has died for him. That's why Paul writes that about Jesus. He says, he became sin um, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin. It's the great exchange. But not only did he die in a substitutionary fashion, but he died willfully. Look at, look at uh, 15 and 16 and 17. He says, he says um, sorry, 17 and 18, He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You know, Jesus was not, his life wasn't taken from him. He he wasn't, um, he didn't fall prey to the schemes of man. He wasn't too weak. You know, he told Pilate that I could call down legions of angels if he wanted to. He laid his own life down voluntarily. He laid it down for us. 
He's submitted to the Father. This isn't some form of cosmic child abuse. Jesus wanted the Father to bruise him because his death was the only way through which we could be saved. And so, so for the joy set before him, enduring the shame of the cross, he laid himself down. Now, you talk about selflessness. And as John initiated this service with our selfishness, we can't go a moment without thinking of how does this affect me. And if it affects you good, you're good. If it affects you bad, yeah, you're kind of sore about it. And he laid his life down voluntarily, submitting to the plan of the Father for us. That, that, that will forever garner our attention in heaven. It'll forever. But not just was it willfully, it was successfully done. Look at what he says. He says, I lay it down of my own accord, but I have the authority to take it up again. This is really important. This is a picture to Jesus isn't dying in some goofy way, like some deliriously in love man throws himself off a cliff to proclaim his love for some woman. She's watching him fall. What an idiot. It does nothing. It's a wasteful. It's not exemplary. It's, it's not. It's, it's a wasted life. And so when Jesus lays his life down, he lays it down because he has authority to take it up again. What he's saying is I'm going to be raised, and so my death is going to with me bring all of life back to God. I love the way C.S. Lewis says it. He says it this way. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. But he goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world with him. One is a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift it. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his great shoulders. You can just see Jesus. I lay my life down to take it up again because he will restore all creation. For us to think that the power of the gospel saves us from hell is true and right. But let's go so much broader and so much deeper. He's come to restore all of fallen creation and bring it all back to God just as it should have been, but even better because now it's been redeemed by Christ. So this is why he's a good shepherd. He lays his life down for us. This is a point of rejoicing again for the Christian. Because when you think about it, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus becomes a lamb. He becomes the sheep and he's protecting sheep. He lays himself down. It's a point of great rejoicing for us. But notice in 19 to 21, look at the responses. The responses are varied. Some reject him. They say there's a division among the Jews. Many of them said he is a demon. He's insane. Why listen to him? It is crazy. It is crazy to hear someone say, you can't save yourself. You're not adequate. You're not good enough. That, that God had to send his own son to die for you. That's offensive to people. It is. When you talk to people, even religious people, no, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm not killing anybody. I'm doing something. You see them immediately begin to tilt back and lean on their own, their own works. This is offensive to people. It, it, it's the paradoxical nature of the Christian faith. Hey, you want to live, die. You want to be first, be last. You want to be strong, be weak. You know, it, it's, a paradoxical, it's a paradoxical faith. But it makes sense. And to those that make sense, we don't think he's insane. And we don't think he's 
possessed. But notice what the people say. Don't listen to him. How are you identified as a sheep? You listen to him. They're saying don't listen to him. There's always going to be people that oppose this message. And they're going to oppose you believing in the message. But look at the other group here. The other group is considering, reflecting perhaps. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? They're not fully on board just yet, but they're considering his words and his works. And so if you're not a Christian here, I would say consider his words and works. Think about it. What does he say? Don't simply judge Jesus by the followers that are struggling to follow, but but look at Jesus. What does he say and what has he done? Can a man with these words open the eyes of a blind? Of a blind man, can he? And then for the Christian here, and I would encourage you, as you consider these words, that faith, what does faith look like? What does it mean to enter the Christian faith? It means that I'm no longer looking at myself, but I'm looking at him to save me and deliver me. I repent of my sins, and I move forward believing that he will now lead me as the great shepherd. But for the Christian here, I would also warn you, you know, not warn you in a bad sense, I love you. And so I say to you, there are a lot of shepherds out there speaking to us. There's a lot of offers for love. There's a lot of hopes for salvation. If you do this, you'll be fulfilled. If you look this way, then you'll be satisfied. If you finally get to this income level, then you're good to go. You know, if you can get to this level of thinness, then you'll have more. You know, there's a lot of shepherds out there kind of calling out with their voices for us to follow them. He is the shepherd to follow. We don't want to get caught up in these other voices kind of this, the, the call of the, you know, the, the sweet voice kind of just dripping with sweetness, kind of enticing. No, his voice is the one we listen to. And uh, I just want I say that to you because I really want to say it to myself. I mean, the, throughout the week we just hear, we're, we're just buffeted by the pictures and the philosophies and the values and the ideas of the world, and they are very enticing. Because the things of the world are beautiful. God has given them to us to show us, to lead us to himself. We just unfortunately stop at those things and find our worship there rather than see those as a conduit to worship God. So let's just take a minute now and perhaps confess our sins. If you feel convicted by a measure of of the Spirit showing you how you haven't followed him, you haven't listened to his voice, or perhaps if you have, then rejoice with me over these things. And uh, perhaps if you're struggling, then ask God. He says, come to me, all you are heavy laden and burdened. I'll give you rest. And then um, Edward will close us in just a minute. Thank you.